I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I want us to talk about teamwork tonight and how we can work together, how we must work together. I want to give you a little idea. I was over here uh, scratching on something. This teaches me not to wait to the last minute to do an overhead. Um, but I, you'll forgive my numbers and everything. What I want to give you to begin with before we start this is if we just do percentage-wise what we have done for the last three years. These are what some of our projected numbers would be. Now, it's not what we can do if we get everybody playing on the field and get everybody in the care and the reach and teach and training ministry and get our outfield working like it's supposed to be working and all of that. But it's what, if we just did what we're doing now, so you can imagine what God can do if we get eight or 900 people right now on board doing ministry. These are the numbers, and let me just kind of go down with you. From 94 to the year 2000, we would project 250 people would make professions of faith through the ministry of this church this year, next year, all the way up to the year 2000, 395 a year making professions of faith, which would mean if we keep our ratio of how many we baptize of those that make professions of faith, by the year 2000, we will have 238 people baptized in and through the ministries of this church. 475 people coming by letter that year and an attendance of 2,142. Now that's just if we do what we've been doing, which will not nearly do what we can do. Amen. This is just if we just do what we've been doing. Imagine what God can do if we go from 20% of the people doing 80% of the work to 80% of the people working and serving and being sensitive and finding a place where they can get involved. This, this church has always been, in a sense, a staff-run church. What I'm asking you to do is help us to move to a staff-led church with laity that are empowered to do ministry. And staff are free to do what staff was free to do, if you want to use that analogy, free to do in the early church when the apostles were not as responsible for what happened in the church in its growth and its maturity and its discipleship as they were for making sure that everything stayed on track. It was the people who were saved at Pentecost. It was those new believers that caused the church at Jerusalem to grow. The apostles came in when they had to deal with problems, when they had to do some equipping. But we're talking about empowering people to do some things with their lives that God has empowered them to do by the Holy Spirit. And not just a few people who are ordained doing the work of ministry, but those who, who are called and set aside for vocational service, being the equippers and the trainers and the leaders who find other leaders who will equip and train other leaders, which is exactly what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Now, we're in 2 Thessalonians. You're probably wondering what all that had to do with this. We'll figure it out sooner or later. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Great passage of Scripture here. Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. 
For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have a right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons, he's talking about the busybodies, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The greatest temptation, the greatest tragedy in the life of the church is those who stay apart and uninvolved who take the road of least resistance. The president of Columbia University said, I divide the world into three categories, the few who make things happen, the many who watch things happen, and the vast majority of those who have no idea what in the world is happening. The church at Thessalonica was crippled by those who backed away from their responsibilities, who wanted to give those jobs to somebody else, who left the load for others to carry. Paul writes and addresses this problem and says there is no room for passivity in the life of the church. Would you not agree with me that at least at some points in the life of this church or any church that you've been a part of, that some of the members have not been busy doing what God saved them to do? It's a pretty common problem, isn't it? It's nothing new to us. It was as current as those who lived in the shadow of the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord. That quickly, after the coming of Christ again from the grave and appearing to them and it being fresh on the minds and eyewitnesses of the resurrection being in their midst, that quickly the church began to wane in its commitment. It just tells us that if the devil can't keep us in, from going to heaven, he will keep us from working to get other people there. He will get involved in our midst to try to make us settle for less than God's best. Now, I want you to walk with me through a couple of verses of Scripture. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And then Galatians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And then Galatians 58, I'm sorry. And then Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Some very important words that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Chapter 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, I notice what he tells them to do. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Phillips paraphrases this, let nothing move you as you busy yourself in the Lord's work. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, 
is a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's the law of the harvest. It's the law of sowing and reaping. And any of you that have ever done any sowing know that that is hard work. It is tiring work. And you can grow weary sowing. You can grow weary reaping. But Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And notice what he says in verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. I think that's a word of encouragement to us as we begin talking about playing ball because it is important that we do not grow weary in doing what is right to do, that we do not grow weary in taking our role and our responsibility seriously. There are two statements that I want to give you by Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott is one of the heroes of the faith, and, and if they were to add somebody's name to the uh, book of Hebrews in chapter 11, I, I'm sure somewhere in chapter 10 or chapter 11, Jim Elliott's name would find it. His, he made this statement. He said, wherever you are, be all there. Have you ever thought about that? Wherever you are, be all there. Have you ever met people that are never really all there? I'm not talking about the elevator doesn't go to the top floor. I'm, you know, look in their eyes and you can tell nobody's been home in a long time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are always living somewhere in their past or always hoping for something out there in their future. But they're never living for today. You see, you can't change your past, you can't go back to it, and you can't control your future. The only day you've got is today. Wherever you are, be all there. One of the things that I appreciate that God does and some of the people that he brings into this church is consistently we have some Marines and they're singles and they're married and they come into this church and I, it, it must be something that the Marines teach people because when they come in, they don't come into this church saying, well, we're only going to be here for two years so we're not going to get involved. They say, we're going to be here for two years and we're going to build as many relationships and as many friendships and get involved as much as we can. Why? Because wherever you are, you ought to be all there. You ought to have your head in the game. You ought to have your life committed to wherever you are because you don't know that that may be the last place you ever are. The second statement that Jim Elliott made that I think is significant is live to the hilt whatever you believe to be the will of God for your life. Live to the hilt whatever you believe to be the will of God for your life. Look at your life and where it is and in those situations that you find yourself that you believe to be the will of God, live it to the hilt. Don't be half-hearted because Christianity is not a spectator sport. In fact, there are no bleachers and no grandstands on heaven. The great cloud of witnesses is already in heaven. They're not here on earth. We have too many great clouds of witnesses who are here on earth that need to be out on the field and playing the game and doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, Paul had this problem in Thessalonica, and some of them were neutral that should have been involved. Some of them were not living to the hilt. They were indecisive in times that demanded them to be decisive. They wanted to turn the other way and go the other direction when God tapped them on the shoulder and said, it's your turn now. You need to get involved now. 
You see, what they were doing is they were excusing their laziness with theology. And isn't it amazing how often theology is used to excuse a lot of things? They were saying, well, we can't work, and we expect the church to feed us. In fact, we want to come up to the church and have them take care of our needs and, and make our payments and do all these things because we're just going to sit out in our yards because we believe that Jesus is soon coming, and we're going to wait for him and just, just fold our hands and just gloriously wait for the soon coming Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's going to take us out of this old wicked world, and, and since he's coming soon, we're not even going to worry about getting a job or doing anything. We're just going to kind of sit and coast and wait, and we're going to be ready when he gets here. Paul says, don't do that. In fact, he says in verse 6, I'm, I'm kind of shocked uh, at how strong Paul is. I shouldn't be after reading his letters. Now we command you, brethren. And remember, he's addressing Christians. This is a Christian malady. This is a Christian problem. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Now, there's a key little phrase in here that's different then, I think, from where we are now in the average Baptist church. He says that you keep aloof from every brother. That is singular. Paul is indicating by the use of the singular there that the majority of the church was doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were serving, they were working, they were sharing their faith, they were committed to the ministry, they were committed to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is there are a few who are failing, in fact so few, that he chooses to use in the Greek text the singular Keep away from every brother. He didn't say keep away from all those folks. He didn't say keep away from the brethren. He says to the brethren, plural, keep away from the brother, singular. Now, here's what's interesting about Paul's preaching. Paul never had a problem telling the whole church about a few that were causing problems. We have a problem with that. Because you see... Paul knew they couldn't leave and go to any other church. They had to stay right there. And so he put their feet to the fire and he said, By the way, church, my sermon today is on the brother who's sitting around in his backyard waiting for you to feed him. I want to talk to you about him. And everybody in the room turned around and knew who he was talking about. That makes it uncomfortable, doesn't it? We always get on the preacher for saying, boy, I tell you what, you knew who the preacher was talking about today. Well, in Paul's day, they knew who the preacher was talking about. You see, there is a holy accountability in the body of Christ that if an arm is not functioning, everybody ought to be aware that the arm's not functioning. If a hand's not doing its job, everybody ought to know the hand's not doing its job. Uh, I, Steve was sharing with me an interesting story about Brazil. Now, the, boy, you talk about waking up a church. If you go to Brazil, at the main exits of the church, there are bulletin boards. And on those bulletin boards are listed alphabetically the names of every member in the church with what they have given to the church in the last month. What a great idea. Say, <laughs> so, oh, giving's a private matter. Listen, brother, anything you do for God's not a private matter. Nothing you and I do for God's a private matter. Why would you even be embarrassed if you love Jesus Christ and He's your Lord and Savior? Why would you even be embarrassed if anybody knew? 
Why would it be awkward for us to know? For anybody to know, here's what I do because I believe, well, all I've got is a widow's mite. Bless God, he notices the widow's mite. And he said, that's good enough. That's good for them. That's what they did. She gave her might. You see, Paul had this way of singling out, and he said, I'm going to speak to that one that is not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and he's commanding them. He says, I command you, brethren. It's an imperative. There's no option. In fact, if you'll notice, he doesn't just say, I command you to keep aloof from every brother. I want you to notice how serious this is. Look at it in verse 6, and don't miss it. He said, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, boys and girls, I'm serious. I'm not just telling you, this is not Paul telling you, I'm commanding you in every name I can think of of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you stay away from those folks. Don't have fellowship with them. Keep aloof from them. He says, because they are unruly. Now, there, there's an interesting concept behind that word unruly. In fact, he uses it three times in this passage. If you'll notice, once it's translated unruly, twice it's translated undisciplined in New American Standard. The word unruly means to play truant. It is the idea of skipping school, of not being where you're supposed to be and not doing what you're supposed to be doing. It is the idea of being absent and being bored and being a busybody and not being active in what you're supposed to be active in, but rather being idle. These people were being idle, watching the sky for Christ's return. And Paul says, keep aloof from them. We are not supposed to condone the mentality of laziness, and we are not supposed to be complacent and overlook it, we are supposed to address the issue, and Paul says how we're supposed to address it. Now, if you have intimate fellowship with somebody who is a busybody or unruly, guess what that looks like? It looks like you're condoning that kind of behavior. It looks like that is acceptable behavior in the body of Christ. Now, the second thing he talks about is that we have to work because he has given us an example. Verses 7 through 10, he says, To those who are in Thessalonica, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined, same word again, unruly, in a truant manner among you. Now, in secular Greek... This word undisciplined or unruly was used as a military term, and it meant to be out of rank. Out of rank. It was also used to talk about being out of action because of desertion. Paul says, I wasn't out of rank. I wasn't out of action. I didn't desert you. I didn't abandon you. I didn't walk away from my responsibilities among you in your midst. And he said, I also never took any advantage of you, for we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Now, he had mentioned that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he said, For you were called, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devotedly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you as believers. See, I like Paul. Because Paul never came to sponge off a church. He never came to be a ministerial sponge. He came and he carried his weight and he did his job. Now, can't you imagine 
that Paul could have walked into any church in the Roman Empire and said to some of his staff, to some of the guys that hung around with him, uh, Luke, go in there and tell them I'm here. Make sure they've got one of those seats down front reserved for me. And it'd probably be good if they'd announced my coming because after all, I am the Apostle Paul. You, you go in there and tell them I'm on my way. And in fact, have, have them prepare something for me because I, I, you know, it's hard out here on the road and I need some special treatment. Paul said, I didn't come and eat anybody's bread. I didn't come and ask for any special favors. I didn't come and ask for any special treatment. All I did was come among you, and I did not lead an undisciplined or an unruly life. And he says in verse 9, not because we don't have the right to do this, because he did have the right to do it as an apostle, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. Now then in verse 10, you find Paul's motto. He says, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying nobody owes us a living. Paul is saying he's not condemning those who can't work. He's condemning those who won't work, who refuse to work. There is no place in the economy of God for a leech. There's no place in the economy of God for somebody to coast to heaven. He doesn't allow for that. And so then Paul says, I've given you my example. I've set the pattern for you. You've seen it in my life. Now, work or suffer the consequences. Verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. There's that word again. Undisciplined, unruly, truants, out of rank and that they are doing no work at all but acting like busybodies. You know what a busybody is? A busybody is somebody who's busy about the business that they don't have any business being busy about. Don't ask me to repeat that. They're busy about other people's business. They're unruly and undisciplined and they're lethargic and they're just kind of walking through life at a casual pace. Moffat translates this, neglecting their own business to mind other people's business. You see, something has to fill the busybody's time. And so they become involved in playing the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. They become pity or picky. They become gossips. They become idle. And they get involved in other people's lives, never on the front lines doing what God called them to do being critical of what those who are working are doing, making suggestions on how they ought to do their work, but never doing their own work. Listen, still water stagnates. And a ship will rot in the harbor a lot quicker than it will out in the open sea. Busybodies. Just out there getting in everybody's business. Have you ever met these people? <laughs> Every pastor knows them. I just feel led to tell you this is what I think we ought to do. Now, you don't see them on Sunday night. You don't see them on Wednesday night. They never come to visitation, but they've always got a word from God for the pastor. I wonder about that. I wonder, God, if I didn't show up and preach one Sunday, would you have a word from God for me? If I just ignored my responsibilities, would you have a word for me? And you know, I love these folks that say, you know, the Lord led me to tell you this. Because my response deep down inside is, the Lord is probably going to tell me not to listen to you because you hadn't been talking to Him. See, they're busybodies. Always getting in other people's lives. 
playing Holy Spirit in other people's lives, always trying to manage other people's lives. Have you noticed that there are some folks that can manage other people's lives better than they can their own? Don't look at me like you've never met these people. No. <laughs> They're just busy, busy, busy about other folks' stuff. <laughs> I read a statement this week. There's a vast difference between putting your nose in others' business and putting your heart in others' problems. There's a difference between curiosity and compassion. A bright eye indicates curiosity. A black eye indicates too much. Paul would say those who are busybodies make a mess of their lives, they make a mess of others' lives, and they ultimately make a mess of the church. Always busy about somebody else's business, expecting somebody else to pay the freight. Dr. Havner said, Jesus said, salt without savor is good for nothing. What are you good for? It's a great question. Salt without savor is good for nothing. What are you good for? Are you a busybody? Are you diligently and actively involved? Because he says in verse 12, now such persons, he's talking to those busybodies, he says, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Now, Paul is tactful. You've got to give him that. Such persons is a tactful way of saying, listen, you lazy, no good for nothing loafers, get to work. You busybodies, go to work. I command and exhort you. Paul is not interested in putting them out. He's interested in putting them to work. Paul's not saying, y'all just get out of here. He's saying, y'all get to work. There's a job for you to do. There's some place for you to serve. There's something for you to do. Earn your way. Pay your way. Did you hear about the woman that came to the psychiatrist? And she had a strip of bacon hanging from each ear and an egg on top of her head. And she said, doctor, I want to talk to you about my brother. That's a busybody. I mean, she doesn't need to talk about her brother. She needs to go to the doctor and talk about herself. I want to talk to you about other people. No, mind your own business. Now, then Paul turns very quickly, and he talks to those who are engaged in ministry and who are examples of diligence, and he says to them in verse 13, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. The Living Bible says never be tired of doing right. Don't let someone's lack of diligence... Cut off your life of diligence. Just because somebody else doesn't serve, don't use that excuse that you want. Just because somebody else won't pray, don't make it your excuse that you want. Don't judge your lives by what other people do. Do what Paul says. Do not grow weary of doing good. Now, most preachers would stop here. And they say, would you stand? It's time for the invitation. And if somebody wakes up right now, they're going to stand up. We're going to know who's listening. But uh, most preachers would stop right here. But Paul must have had a musical background. In fact, I think Paul was probably in a marching band. Because Paul inserts here a stinger. You know what a stinger is? You know what a stinger is? Anybody, anybody in the band know what a stinger is? You know, the song ends, and then the band, and then it goes, boom! Or ba bum You know, it just, I mean, it's, it, it's over. Everybody thinks it's over, and then the band leader just hits a little ba bum 
That's what Paul does right here. Paul says, no, y'all don't grow weary in doing work. And the busybodies are thinking, boy, bless God, I'm glad he got off our case. And then Paul comes back and goes, boom. This is a gut punch, if you will. He takes the air out of them. He says in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note. That little phrase, take special note, in the original means you draw a big circle around them so you can mark out that spot. You mark that spot out well. You mark that person out well so you'll know where that is. Take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Now, beloved, this is the treatment that Paul says you ought to give to people who won't work in the church. Doesn't that make us uncomfortable? Because we all want to be nice people. And we want everybody to like us. But don't get mad at me. Go complain to the Holy Spirit that told Paul to write these words down. All I'm going to do is tell you what it says. If anybody doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, Paul is saying, don't forget who the enemy is. The enemy is not that brother that won't work. The enemy is the devil. He's not your enemy. This is a brother, a sinning brother, a fallen brother, a disobedient brother, but he is a brother. He is not promoting loveless condemnation. What he's saying is, here's how you make an impact on those people. You don't talk to them. You don't spend time with them. You don't associate with them. If you want to make an impact on this brother that will not do what he's supposed to do, don't associate with him. When they call you up, you can't talk. When they ask you out to eat, you can't go, even if they offer to pay. When they invite you over, you can't come. When they ask for your help, you ignore them. Why? Because Paul says that they might be put to shame. It is a passive Greek word, that little phrase, put to shame, that means to give the idea of turning upon one's self. Here's what he's saying that when they are isolated, they will look in the mirror at themselves and say, you know what? Somehow, I've become less than what God wanted me to be. Somehow, I don't fit in anymore. Somehow, I'm not a part of that anymore. And then the Holy Spirit of God uses that to bring them to repentance. You say, well, what if they get mad and they leave? then that's their choice. Paul just says, you do it so the Holy Spirit can work on them and get their attention and remind them that they have a job to do and they have responsibilities in the church that they are to carry out. Don't let them steal your zeal. Don't let them take your energy. Let me ask you something. Do folks like that drain you or do they just drain me? We spend all of our time in the church, not all of our time, but a lot of our time in the church, trying to get people to do things that even God can't get them to do. Paul would say, why are you doing that? I've got a friend of mine that was on a staff at a church in Texas, and they decided that the way that they were going to find out who was committed and who wasn't, that they announced for three months, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming in three months. It's coming. It's coming in two months. It's coming in one month. We're three weeks away, and it's coming. We're two weeks away. Next Sunday is it. You know what next Sunday was? 
Next Sunday was, in the next two weeks, if you don't come to church, you're not a member here anymore. We'll mail you your church letter and you can take it wherever you want to go. Because if you're not going to show up with this kind of warning and you're not going to call us and let us know why you can't show up, then it must be you don't want to show up and you don't care if you're a member here or not, so we're just going to send you. They said they got people back at church they had not seen in years. And the preacher preached on tithing. <laughs> well, if you're going to get them one time, you know, at least keep the word true. Every time I go to church, the preacher's talking about tithing. <laughs> What he's doing in this verse 14, he's giving an amplification of verse 6. Bob Thomas, in his commentary on this passage, says, Anyone refusing to comply with the work ethic set out in this letter was not to be associated with, so that he might be ashamed of his behavior. He was not to be expelled from the church like the sinning brother in 1 Corinthians 5. In Corinth, the offense was so flagrant as to bring disrepute on the whole church. In Thessalonica, the erring brother was allowed to continue in the meetings, but probably denied participation in the Lord's Supper. Do not associate implies let there be no intimate association with them. Dr. Havner told a story one time about how he was preaching and some young, bright, not so bright, seminary students came up to him after he had preached a particularly hard message and said to him, and Dr. Havner, we can't get that out of the New Testament. And Dr. Havner said, you're right, because it's there to stay. Some people say, well, I can't get that out of the New Testament. You're right, it's going to stay there. Now, folks, here's our problem. We've either got to decide that we act biblically, or we've got to decide that we act how we want to act. These are hard words. These are tough words. These are difficult things to do. But I want to ask you something in light of these verses. Do you have a lazy friend who's a Christian? Do you have a Christian friend that is a close intimate of yours and they're uninvolved? Are you intimately involved with them? Are you still close with them? Are they undisciplined, unruly, truant, never come, and still a close friend? I just want to ask you one question. Why? Can I tell you, folks, life's too short to let people keep pulling you down. Why are you spending your time with people who are not interested in spending any time with God? Go out and find lost people. If you want to spend time with uninvolved, uncommitted people, get lost people. You get them saved, they'll get committed. You see, the church drains a lot of energy and a lot of time trying to get folks to do something that they ought to do because they love God. Maybe what we need to do is send evangelism teams to those people because they may never have had a new birth experience. See, we must understand that Paul says, if you're going to be a believer in the church, you need to carry your load and do your work. Our problem is not stargazing. Our problem is not members looking for the second coming. Our problem is there's work to do, there are bills to pay, there are jobs to get accomplished, and we need everybody on board doing it. We need everybody as a part of it. <laughs> we talk sometimes among the staff, and we, I talk sometimes with my prayer group and with other folks, you know, there's some of our membership, they look for opportunities to leave town. 
I mean, they're trying to figure out on Monday how they're going to get out of town and go somewhere on the weekend. Do you realize that Southern Baptists are considered faithful if they're in church 39 out of 52 Sundays? Do you know how long I could keep my job if I was here 39 out of 52 Sundays? I missed four last year, and I had people saying, well, you're gone a lot, aren't you? You see, we have responsibilities to fill, and we cannot fill those responsibilities sporadically. We have to put our hands to the plow. We have to go to work. We're a part of a team. We have to do what God's called us to do, and that boils down to three keys. First of all, there are three components for you to do if you're going to be what God wants you to be. First of all, you have to be committed to prayer. Committed to prayer. Is your praying lukewarm? Is it sporadic? What we are talking about with the strategy that we have in place is going to have to be bathed and covered in prayer. You see, we're going to have to take some tough stands, folks. And there are going to be some shots that the devil is going to give us. John Maxwell, who I have a lot of respect for because of what they're doing in their church in the Skyline Wesleyan Church in, in California, he went there. They were running 2,000 in Sunday school. He drew a line in the sand. He went into his first deacon's meeting. He called, in fact, he asked the, the church financial secretary for a copy of the giving records of his deacons. And he, she said, you can't get those. He said, I'm sorry, do you work here? And uh, she said, yes. He said, well, you won't after 5 o'clock today if you don't put that on my desk. So she got the point. So she put the giving records on the desk. And he discovered that over half his deacon body that he inherited in that church was not giving that the chairman of the finance committee hadn't given to the church in 20 years. The chairman of the finance committee. He went to deacon's meeting on that Thursday night. He told them, gentlemen, you got three months to do what's right. If you don't do what's right, I expect your resignations. Two men told him where to go, and they used the word. He said, you don't have a right to make those kind of demands. I think the office of pastor in the New Testament gives that right to make those kind of demands. They went from 2,000 to 1,000. <laughs> Great way to grow a church, isn't it? Today, they had uh, probably today in worship, they had about 3,500 people in worship. They have about 3,700 members. Of the 3,700 members they have, they probably have about 2,800 of those that have jobs in the church. They tell people, if you're going to join this church, there's two things you've got to do. You have to tithe, and you have to accept a place of responsibility where you go to work. You say, well, boy, I bet they don't get a lot of people joining. They got them lining up. They're in a neighborhood where they have a committee of men. You know what their job is? They come at 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings to paint the church to get the graffiti off of it because of the kind of neighborhood they live in. And people drive there, and they stand up around the walls. They have five worship services on Sunday. They are in a $34 million relocation plan, and they will pay for it in five years. Their budget is $8 million. They've got people working. When they bring people up and introduce them, they say, here's so-and-so, they came, they're going to tithe, and this is where this person, they're going to be involved and sit in a Sunday school class for a while, but then this person's going to work in this area. And everybody that works in that area says, boy, that's great, man. Look, at we got another worker in our area. Somebody asked Maxwell, said, what, what, what's been the result of that? He said, I've started four great Baptist churches in our area. 
from people that didn't want to pay the price to be a part of my church. You know what we've got, folks? We've got too many Baptist churches that will not come up to the standard of the New Testament and say, this is the way it is in the kingdom of God. It's not easy believism. It's not easy church membership. The easiest thing in this town to join is a Baptist church. You can get in a Rotary Club and the Lions Club and every other club in town a lot harder than you can get in a Baptist church. If somebody smiles, shakes a hand, stands at the front, they can get in a Baptist church. It ought not to be that way. It ought to be by the blood-bought life of Jesus Christ, and then that person that's blood-bought will want to do the things we're talking about. Amen. If they don't want to do those things, I'm going to say they don't know Jesus. We need to talk to them again, take them through another plan, see if we can figure it out. There's got to be prayer. There's got to be giving, a commitment to stewardship. <laughs> I, saw, I saw an illustration this week about a church that was trying to get their giving up, and uh, our church treasurer and Finance Committee will appreciate this one. They had an offering box that they put at the back. If you put $15 or more in a week, nothing happened. If you only put $5 in, a little bell sounded. If you put in a dollar, it blew a whistle. If you put in 50 cents, a siren went off. If you put in 25 cents, a, sh a shotgun sounded. And if you walked by and gave nothing, it took your picture. <laughs> but the church had to shut it down because they kept running out of film. Committed to prayer, committed to stewardship, committed to service. The quote that's there in your notes by Chuck Swindoll, to be uncommitted and uninvolved is the path, wide path of least resistance. It is the life on the plateau which appeals to a lot of people. It is routine, predictable status quo. It is neither unsettling nor overwhelming. But life on the flat plain is a life of mediocrity. The exhilarating times to be had are in the climb upward, arduous most certainly, perilous on occasion. And yes, you'll get winded along the way and weary, but wait till you see the view from the peaks of Christian commitment. Someday all Christians will look back on their lives, lives which were traveled on one of two separate roads, either lived heartily for the Lord or half-heartedly. And depending on which we choose, we will receive either His reward or an empty hand. I want to remind you of a couple of things and then I want us to talk about where we are. Can everybody see that? I don't know what I'm going to do if you can't, but... You're familiar with the infield. To reach, to care, to teach, and to train, to worship, to preach, and pray. The infield is about the church. The outfield is about the community. We get our house in order in the church so that we can reach out here in the community. Now, the pitcher's mound is where preaching takes place. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, this may sound familiar to some of you. Some of you feel, may feel like, why are we repeating this and why are we going over this? Because it takes us time to get this soaked into our system. Even though we know the Great Commission, it still takes time to assimilate new information and to assimilate any kind of change in our lives, so I just want to go over it again. This is where I have to come out and I have to be ready to pitch. Now, what that means is I have to be like Glavin or somebody like that. That means I'm a pitcher. 
Doesn't mean I play outfield. Doesn't mean that I play the infield. Doesn't mean that I catch. My job is to pitch. Now, I do all the things because I'm a Christian. But my role on this team is to be ready on the pitcher's mound every day and have the kind of ERA that makes us a winner, if you want to use baseball terminology. And those of you who are a part of intercessory prayer, that's where we start. Everything begins with preaching and praying. Everything comes to home plate. Everything goes back toward reaching people with the gospel, with the good news. Now, there is nothing we can do about what anybody's concept is back there. There's everything we can do about how we do church from here on out and how we accept and lead and get people involved and what we expect of folks from here on out. And it's, and it's not going to be ugly or rude for us to say if somebody says, well, I don't want to be committed to giving and I don't want to be committed to serving anywhere, then you ought to find another place. You see, we're not an entertainment center, folks. This is not ESPN or MTV. We're not there just so people can click around and find what they want to come to. This is a church, a holy place set aside for God, and we're not here to entertain. We're here to reach people for Christ. We're not here just to provide a nice environment for folks on Sunday morning that's a lot livelier than someplace else they might choose. We're here to provide an environment where people will be reached, and then we'll care about them, then we'll teach them, and then we'll train them, and then we send them out to reach. We want to get them home so we can take them all the way around the bases so they can come up to the plate again. And they can go out into their outfield and touch people for the cause of Christ. Now, one thing that we talked about Wednesday night in prayer service that has not shown up on this before, and I want to mention it to you because I want to help you understand it. Those of you who understand baseball, tell me what goes right here. First base coach, what goes over here? Third base coach, all right. First base coach is our administrative pastor. That's the person who handles the finances and the facilities and the ongoing ministries of the church and making sure that we have everything ready to do ministry. Now, I'll ask you the question I asked the Wednesday night crowd and see how sharp you are. Who do you think the first base coach is? That <laughs> makes Tom feel so good. He'll sleep good tonight now that you know that that's who that is. Here's the missing position. Our staff is positioned all over this field. But the missing position that we have right now is third base coach. Now, if you want a working title of that position, that is the Minister of Development and Deployment. It's the executive pastor. It's going to be the person that runs the operations on a day-to-day -day basis for us. It's the person that tells people where they need to play, what they need to do, that gets people deployed in the field to make sure everything's covered, and then they develop ministries for us to get out into the outfield and not just become ingrown with ourselves. That is a strategic position. These two positions, the first base and the third base coach, those two positions are crucial to the day-to-day -day operation and function of the church. Now, what you need to pray for is in the deployment of the players, your deployment on the field, the development of our ministries, the filling of that position right there, because those are crucial for us. Those are very, very important for us. We begin tomorrow morning at 7.30, <laughs> walking through all the 700-plus names that have been turned in. And how do we position everybody on this field? This is a long process. And the key to it maintaining is getting the third base coach in a position 
to help us in development and deployment. That's the position you need to pray about. Also, the position of a part-time person to do preschool and a part-time person to do children because we have 40% of our attendance on Sunday morning that is in preschool and children. That merits somebody that's working with them on an ongoing basis. So that's helped us to understand what our, our, our philosophy and our strategy and our ministry and the Great Commission helps us to understand what we've got to do and why we have to do it. It means that we have to evaluate every ministry that we do in light of, is it accomplishing these things up here? Is it not a good idea? That's not the issue. There are a lot of good ideas, but does it help us to accomplish this? Now, here's what staff in these positions and the third base coach and the first base coach are going to help us do. Somebody comes in and wants to do something that's just off the wall. They're going to look at where we are and say, no, that's a good idea, but that's a foul ball. That will not play on this field. You may have done that somewhere else, but it doesn't fit our, our ministry strategy. It doesn't fit our goal. It doesn't fit in the outfield. It doesn't fit in the infield. And we're not going to try to redesign baseball fields because they've been doing that for a long time, and we figure out they know what they're doing. So that's the strategy we're staying with. Now, everything in that fits in the Great Commission. The infield is primarily done through Sunday school, through Bible study. Then the outfield gets involved in a lot of ministries, and we have our staff broken down into some special teams. We have a, a recreation outreach team that works just on what we're going to do about right field. When we come to things like the kingdom and the tree, that's left field, and that's, and that's not saying the music ministry's out in left field, okay? <laughs> We've got people there. <laughs> we got folks that work on that. I'm going to lose it. <laughs> the education area in center field, that's our school. That's our missions involvement overseas. That's what we do in our missions offering, but it's also us getting out and doing missions, local, regional, state, wherever it might be, getting involved in the community and making an impact in the community. You know, people drive by this church and they don't know really what we're all about. Our goal is to get away from anybody being a busybody, everybody going to work, so that everybody in this community understands what we stand for. One of our men had a gentleman in his business this past week, and they were talking about church, and this gentleman was sharing how he was disgusted with his church, and I won't name the church or the denomination. It's not a Baptist church, so you can figure out from there, but he was talking about how disgusted he was, and, and one of our men said, well, you ought to just find yourself a good church. He said, oh, you're talking about Sherwood. Hey, that's the name we ought to work for. And when people talk about a place that ministers to people, that cares for people, that teaches people the Word of God, that trains people how to be disciples, that goes out in the community and makes a positive witness for Jesus Christ, our name needs to come up. If it doesn't, then we're in too many holy huddles and we've got too many busybodies. See, the key is, does the community know we're committed to this? because that is who we're trying to reach. Does the community, is the community aware that when they come here, we're going to care for them? You know how they'll know that? If we care for the ones that are already here. Does the community know that when they come here, they'll be taught the Word of God without apology? You know how they'll know that? There'll be people in our church that go out into the community and live the Word of God without apology. Does the community know if they come here, they'll be trained? You say, well, you know, I don't know if I want to get involved in training. I don't know if I want to be involved in that. Listen, if you were a communist, you wouldn't have an option. Why should the church expect any less of a standard than communism expected for a lie? 
We believe the truth. What does the truth mean? It means that we are to disciple people and to make disciples and to teach them and train them to do the work of God in this world and to be used by Him. So what does all this mean? Anybody notice anything missing on this graph? Bleachers. <laughs> no bleachers. No grandstands. Why? Because we are going to assume that everybody is going to play. And why wouldn't you if you love Jesus and love this church? Why wouldn't you want to? You see, everybody can do something. Everybody can be a part. And when you get to the summit of that commitment, you will find it's a view that you have never seen before. Folks, when I lay down and die one day, I want one thing. I want to know that I climbed mountains, not that I wallowed in valleys. I want to die climbing. I don't want to die wasting my time doing that which anybody could do with little or no commitment to the cause of Christ. I want to make a difference in my generation like we've talked about before. I want to make a difference in this world. So people will remember me? No. So that they will remember Christ who was in this place in such a real way that it compelled and drew people into this place in unbelievable numbers. And when we get them here, we will take responsibility for training them. It's going to be a lot of creative things. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of work. We're going to get weary, but you're going to have to prop up and encourage one another because it's going to be important that everybody is on this together. So here we are at the end, and I want to give you this, and then we're through. <clears throat> Where are we as a team? We're at a crossroads. We can do business as usual, <clears throat> or we can play to win. Secondly, we're at a time of decision. Now, you've already done that. Most of you have already filled out a card. It's that time, and I keep using that phrase of putting your hand to the plow. It's Paul saying, I run the race. I don't want to stumble, lest at the end I become a castaway. There's no turning back, no second guessing, no end runs. You see, it means that we're not going to play a bunch of different games. We're going to play one game, and we're going to do it well. It's a time of personal commitment to this team. What that means, folks, is if you hear somebody running down one of your teammates, you need to go to that teammate's defense, or you need to practice Matthew 18 and encourage them to go to that teammate that they're running down and try to resolve that difficulty, because nothing tears up a team more than conflict and controversy and players not getting along. It's a commitment to the team. It's a commitment to this church saying, this is where I am. This is what I'm committed to. It's a commitment to this philosophy. And philosophy may not even be a good word. It's a strategy. It's a mindset. It's the Great Commission is what we're talking about. It's a commitment to planning and preparation. That means when we schedule the times of planning and preparation and trying to help you be a better team player, you've got to be committed to doing it. It cannot be optional. It's a time of personal commitment of your gifts and your talents, of your time and of your heart, with a vision, with a passion, with self-discipline, with loyalty, and with integrity. If we will do those three things, 
we will make a difference for Jesus. Not that we have not made a difference for Jesus in the past, but we will be a part of something so supernatural that we will be amazed at the glory of God that falls on this place. Do you want to be a part of something like that? Do you want to do something like that? Do you want to just come to church and do the church thing, or do you want the church to change your life and Jesus Christ to change your life and then for you to go out and change the world? There's my commitment. I've already sat down and decided this is where I am. Whatever problems we have from here on out are our problems. Whatever obstacles we face are obstacles we will deal with together. But this is one manager that's not looking for another team, not trying to find any place else to play, not interested in what anybody else is doing. I'm just interested in what God wants to do in this place. If God blesses everybody else in this town, I bless God for it. If other churches that get bigger than us, I bless God for it. But I'm going to be committed to doing what God wants to do with us, and I don't want us sitting around playing what-if games 10 years from now. I want us doing what God has called us to do now so that when we get in the future, we can know wherever we are and whatever we've accomplished, it has been because God has done it through us. And then He will get the glory and He will get the credit. And if it goes anywhere else, it's never been of God in the first place. This is